Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. interesting turn of events as I am looking at the people who are here, the masses, the throngs that are here, I suspect that everyone I'm talking to this morning knows everything I'm about to teach. And yet, I'm going to teach it again. For sake of the people on the internet, for the sake of the people who haven't heard it, and for the sake of those who need the review, need the refresher. So let me begin this morning with a bit of a mea culpa, because I am just an ordinary man doing a uh, sometimes difficult job in the midst of extraordinary circumstances. I have talked to a few of my pastor friends this week scattered around the country and we have been talking about churches being opened versus churches being closed. Online this week there are people arguing back and forth about 
whether churches should be open or closed, and they are doing it in a very uncharitable way. They are arguing against each other and castigating each other and questioning each other's faith and you know, arguing that if you've closed, then you've compromised with the state. Or if you're open, then you don't really love your congregants because you're raising the level of exposure for them. And so regardless of which position you take, closed or open, there are plenty of people online who will tell you how wrong you are. And I've been very put off by that sort of arguing. And then I went back and listened to what I said last week. And in my opening comments last week, I think I crossed that line because I said that, that I didn't understand why some churches would close, and then I argued that God needed to be worshipped regardless of circumstance. The basic premise that God needs to be worshipped regardless of our circumstances is true. I'll stand on that till the day I die. I have said repeatedly that the best definition of faith that I have ever come across is that faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. And so we find ourselves now in very peculiar circumstances, different, I think, than the circumstances that any of us have ever encountered in our lifetime, where businesses are being shut down. Governor Bill Lee apparently has placed Tennessee on a lockdown so that Fewer and fewer businesses will be open. And so that's a really unique situation for the church to find itself in. And the decision to stay open or to close is a very, very difficult decision. So let me say this. I do understand why churches would close. And every person in every church has to do according to their own conscience at this moment. What I was advocating last week and what I still advocate is regardless of what happens, you worship God. Even if you get the coronavirus and are suffering from it, uh, you worship God. Even if this is the end of your life, you worship God. If you get the virus and then you recover, you, you worship God. You thank God and you worship God under all circumstances. I do think that I went a little far last week in castigating churches that have closed because through the circumstances of this week, I understand that I should have mitigated those comments. I do understand it. Everybody has to operate according to their own conscience. And some of the folks who heard me say that felt that maybe I was unfair. And I was. I shouldn't have been quite that particular in expressing my opinion about churches closing. All I can do is decide what's right for GCA, and even then, I do it within the council of the congregation. So last week, I said that I would be here every Sunday and Wednesday, and I would stand here and teach for whoever also showed up, and that even if nobody showed up, I would still stand here and do that, so that I am still putting out regular teaching and lessons onto the internet. And this, what I'm doing right now, this is how I worship God. This is how I demonstrate to him the value that he has in my life. I've stood up here behind this pulpit and opened the Bible when I was sick. I've done it when I was under extreme duress. I've done it when I was emotionally devastated. I've done it through all the circumstances of life because this is how I demonstrate to God the value that he has in my life. But that's why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. You all have to decide what's right for you and what you're going to do. And if, let's say, Charlie and Kenneth said, we're worried about our children, and for that reason, we're not going to be with you, well, God bless you. You're looking out for your kids. Or if you said, uh, my pregnant wife should not risk the coronavirus, I'm with you. I get it. Don't take that risk. We have many families that are out today, and they have contacted me and told me their reasons, and I utterly agree with every one of them. Mm. 
I'm not criticizing them. They need to stand before God and worship God and give account according to their own conscience. And I'm nobody's conscience other than my own. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. And people have to decide for themselves what's appropriate. But for as long as I can, and for as long as the government and my health will let me, I will stand here on Sundays and Wednesdays. I think even if we opted in the weeks to come, if we opted not to meet congregationally, if we decided to do something online, whatever we did online, I would do from right here. I would do from this pulpit because getting my body up and bringing myself here and preaching God's word is, as I said, how I worship God. It's how I give back to him for all the things that he has given me. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's why I took the stand I took last week. And if I took it too forcefully for some people, if I offended anybody, I deeply apologize. That was not my intention to offend anybody. But I did hear back from a few people who thought that maybe I was being a little too forceful with my opinion against people who were just doing what seemed right in their conscience. And so, yes, let them do according to their own conscience. I'm not your judge. Yeah. Fair enough? Yes. Okay. The last couple of weeks, we have been talking about sovereign election. And we've talked about the fact that in the Bible, Israel is referred to as God's elect. Repeatedly through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as God's chosen people because he elected them. He chose them out of all the peoples on the earth. And God took the time to say, it's not because you were better than other people. It's not because you were greater in number. God chose them because they were the people through whom he was going to demonstrate his holiness, his righteousness, also his grace to them, his kindness and long-suffering to them, and through them the Messiah was going to come to the earth. And so he chose them as a people group, and that becomes our typology or our foreshadowing or our demonstration of what election is. We get to the New Testament and we read that Christ is the elect one. God chose him, anointed him to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then God chose people to place in his son so that his son's sacrifice fully redeemed them, fully paid the sacrifice that was the remission of their particular sin, and he did all that because he chose them. So Israel was chosen. Through Israel comes the Messiah. He's the chosen one. And then the people that are placed in Messiah, for whom Messiah is the redemptive lamb, for all of them they are referred to as the chosen. What we're going to look at this morning, just very briefly, as I said last week, I didn't quite close up the topic. I just want to close up the topic this morning and show you a couple places where the people are referred to as the elect. That is a nickname that God gives them. He designates them as the elect, the chosen, as opposed to the world, the world that God did not choose, the God-hating world, as opposed to them, there are the elect of God. And Paul uses that exact language. In Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that there is a certain way that the elect ought to act because they are the elect. The very fact that they are chosen by God, then there's a certain way that we ought to behave because we are the elect of God. And he says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, since that's who you are as a group of people, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on these bowels of mercy, have a heart of kindness and compassion and mercy for other people, and kindness and humbleness of mind, not vaunting yourself up, not thinking more of yourself than you ought to think. 
meekness and long-suffering. In that long-suffering, you forbear with one another. In other words, you be patient with one another, even as some of you may not get along with the personalities of others that God has chosen. Nevertheless, because you're chosen, because you're going to spend all eternity together, because you're made in the image of God, and because you are redeemed by the same Christ, Paul instructs you to forbear, to put up with each other, to be patient with each other and your particular personality quirks. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Because there's nobody in this room who at some point isn't going to offend somebody else. So forgive one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, then even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. In other words, even when you're having a difficult time forgiving somebody else, remember that you're not forgiving them For your sake or for their sake, you're forgiving them for Christ's sake, and Christ forgave you. And if you're honest with yourself, and if everything we've been reading about total depravity is true, then how much did Christ forgive you? To what extent did he forgive you? And what is he putting up with out of you even to this day? Well, if that becomes your standard then it becomes much easier to forgive other people who have offended you because you've offended God and you're still offending God every single day. As long as you're walking in these bodies of flesh, you are continuing to do and to think in unholy ways, in sinful ways. And that is an offense against the absolute holiness of God. And yet he forbears with you. He's long-suffering. He's patient with you. And that becomes your standard for putting up with and forgiving other people who are also the elect of God. Why should you be so forgiving? Well, because you yourself have been so forgiven. So forgiven, in fact, that Paul would write to the Romans in Romans 8, in verse 33, and ask the question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, since it's God who justified them? On the basis of Christ's finished redemptive work, God has set you apart from the rest of the world. He has justified you. He has redeemed you utterly, and your sin is no longer a barrier between you and him. If that is all true of you, then nobody, including yourself, can come up with any charge against yourself that's going to last, that's going to have any weight in heaven. Mm. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So there are very definite benefits to being the elect of God. And being the elect of God and knowing that nobody can charge you before the court of God, well, that ought to encourage you yet again to be really patient with those people with whom you are meeting and living and worshiping. You ought to be patient with them. God's awfully patient with you. Amen. In Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, as we wrap up this idea of election, this biblical theology and doctrine of election, Paul writes that he is a servant of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, And he shares the same faith that we share because that is the faith of God's elect. In other words, if God has chosen you, if God has elected you, God is also going to teach you. God is going to enlighten you. He's going to quicken you. He's going to open your ears. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to give you that heart of flesh. Take out your heart of stone. He's going to instruct you in this lifetime. And the thing that he's going to instruct you in is that faith that is common to all the elect of God. If you are among the elect of God, you are not unique. You don't get to make up your own theology. You don't get to say, well, me, for me, I decided that this part of the Bible is good and the other part of the Bible, not so much, because I decide. The faith of the elect is a common faith. We all believe what the Bible says, everything the Bible says. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, says, Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So the hope of eternal life then was promised to whom? The elect. The elect are then given faith in God, faith in the finished work of Christ by the Holy Spirit that God places in every one of his elect. And then he brings them to that common faith that we all share. Is it worth pointing out that even though it's a common faith, every saint of God is at different levels of understanding and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord? And so we need to be patient with each other. You can't say, well, you're not where I am. You don't believe what I believe. You're not as advanced as I am. And therefore, I'm going to play a little bit of spiritual one-upmanship on you and tell you that you really ought to do it the way I do it because the way I do it is the right way. Every one of God's elect started from ground zero. They started at being an enemy of God. They started at not caring at all about the things of God. And then God enlightens them and quickens them, and then they're brought to the word of God, and we have been studying the word of God and teaching verse by verse through the word of God for these past 19 years, and we still haven't gotten to every book in the Bible. And so it's doubtful that some people who have only been saved, redeemed, aware of their own election, if they've only been aware of it for a year or two, of course they're not going to be at the point of total comprehension of everything the Bible has to say. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing growing and learning process that we are all in. And if I'm being completely honest, why not? Let's be honest. Nobody has achieved absolute mastery of the word of God. Because if any human being could totally comprehend the word of God, then it can't be the word of God. Because it's comprehensible in its totality by human beings who could have mastery over it. So we are all in the process of learning and growing every day. Here's another admission for the morning. I admit that I'm 64, which means my next birthday, dead. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm 64. I've been at this a long time. I was raised in the Lutheran church, catechized as a young Lutheran boy, spent you know, the years in the church out in California, the years in the church in Franklin, the years that I have been teaching here, I've invested the greater majority of my life into studying God's word, and still I don't believe that I have even begun to mine out the deep riches of God's word. Sometimes God's word surprises me. Sometimes I will read something in the word of God, and I'll think that just could not have been there the last time I read this, or it would have jumped out at me. But it didn't, because God, who is sovereign, is feeding us bit by bit, little by little, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. He's giving us what we need as we traverse this life here on earth. And I think the reason that some parts of the Bible don't jump out to us the first second, third, hundredth time that we read it is because we didn't need it that bad right then. There were other parts of the Bible that we needed more in order to be encouraged, in order to keep us in this walk, in order to instruct us. And then at the moment that we need it, suddenly that part of the Bible comes alive and teaches us yet again. Sometimes you can read the Bible and you find remarkable encouragement. Sometimes you read it and it's like taking a beating Sometimes you read it and it's like, oh, wow, wow, okay, yeah, God, I give up, uncle. So the Bible has the capacity to teach you and instruct you, but you're never going to master it. That's my point. So, all right, here is the conclusion 
of what we've been looking at concerning the doctrine of sovereign election. Even if we didn't have the abundance of scriptural proofs to declare the doctrine of sovereign election, just basic logic in reading the Bible would drive us to the conclusion that election has to exist, especially if you understand the biblical anthropology if you understand what the Bible says about mankind being completely ruined and dead in trespasses and sins, if you understand that man has no desire for a relationship with God, if you understand that mankind is rebellious against God and that mankind is incapable of understanding anything about God or doing any meritorious work that would obligate God, and yet despite that being the state of human beings, some people do get saved, which the Bible also says, that some people are going to end up in the New Jerusalem forever living with and abiding with God, then how does that happen? How do enemies of God become witnesses of God, saints of God, the holy set apart of God? How does that happen? It can only be God who is the mover, God who is the instigator, God who sees the whole thing through, and it has to be according to God's plan Otherwise, it's just not going to happen because we're not going to do it. Leon, you're going to do it? You're going to take care of it? None of us are going to take care of it. Therefore, it has to be God that is taking care of it. It has to be up to God to determine who it is that is being chosen and who it is that is going to live eternally in his presence. It's axiomatic. It really does prove itself. If you just read and have some comprehension of how God sees mankind in their depravity, then it's unavoidable that if anybody gets saved, that's God's doing. And that's what sovereign election is. So as we continue working through the five doctrines that lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, the next of those doctrines, as we look through the tulip acrostic, The next one is L for limited atonement or particular redemption, it's sometimes called. And here's the rub. Here's the argument. Here, This was the argument at the Synod of Dort. It's the argument today on Facebook. It's the argument no matter where you go. You go into any church, and this is really the rub. And in fact, when I was coming to the Doctrines of Grace which is probably true of most of you as well. When we came to the doctrines of grace, we understood, yeah, depravity. We're depraved. There's no question about that. All we have to do is look at ourselves, and it's obvious that we're depraved. And so then, knowing our depravity, election becomes obvious. And since it is the grace of God that chose us and elected us, irresistible grace, we can comprehend that. We can say, yeah, that has to be the case. And since the Bible talks about persevering in the faith, well, then we could grant that and say, yes, absolutely, you need to be in the faith and stay in the faith and persevere in the faith. And so that makes sense to us. But the first time that I heard the concept of limited atonement, that was the one that sort of pushed me backwards. That was the one that I had a hard time grasping. Now, as I read through the Bible and as I understand the doctrines of grace as a complete whole, I realize that it really can't be any other way, and yet I have sympathy toward people who don't fully get it. Because I didn't fully get it initially. It took a while to grasp it, to really understand it. Especially given the world, the church of the world is teaching people that Jesus died for everybody, and that seems like one of the most loving, gracious things that an all-loving, gracious God could do. If he is truly an all-beneficent God, then he would send his son to die for the sins of the whole world, every single person without exception. Gee, that seems like a very attractive notion. It's just that it's wrong, and it's hard for us to extricate that idea out of our heads because it has been planted there by modern religious thought. So here is the argument. Did Jesus hang on the cross for every man who ever lived without exception, or did he die for the particular 
sinners who God elected, and did he die for them exclusively? Did he only die for those people who God gave him, those people who were written down before the foundation of the world? Did he come and sacrifice himself for their sake to guarantee their salvation, or did he die for everybody without particularity? That's why we use the term particular redemption. And that's also why we use the word limited atonement. I received mail, I remember, years ago when I was first teaching this doctrine and writing the book by grace alone. And I sent a copy, a manuscript copy, to a friend who had been part of the church out in Los Angeles that Tom and I were a part of. And uh, he got the manuscript, and he wrote back to me. It was on a yellow legal pad, and he used, like, three lines for every letter. So he was writing as large and vehemently and angrily as he could write to me. And he started his letter with, Who are you to limit the atonement? I called him up and I said, I didn't. I didn't limit it. It's the Bible. It's God. God limited the atonement. And so as we go through this particular study of limited atonement, I think you're going to see that no matter who you're talking about, Arminian or Calvinist, everybody limits the atonement in some way. Unless you're a universalist. If you believe that Jesus died for everybody and therefore everybody is saved and everybody goes to heaven, that's the only way that you can consistently not limit the atonement. Otherwise, you have to limit it somehow. So limited atonement is actually a good description of the atonement that you find in the Bible. So the debate centers on the necessary consequences of either of those positions. He died for everyone or he died for a particular group of people. The Bible clearly states that not everyone will be saved. Uh, You read about hell. Hell exists because not everybody's going to be saved. You read in the book of Revelation that there are people who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire that was made for the devil and his angels. That means not everybody's going to be saved. Jesus, when he was walking on the planet, talked to the Pharisees and said that their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was an unforgivable sin. It wasn't going to be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. So that being the case, since not everybody is saved, then we have to ask if Christ died for everybody without exception, then he really only made salvation a possibility. He didn't actually save anybody. In other words, he died for the sins of the whole world, but then we can demonstrate that there are some people who did not get saved, therefore his death did not actually save anybody. It merely made salvation available for anybody who would take advantage of it if he died for everybody. Hmm. However, if Christ actually finished the work of redemption... If his death was completely sufficient and effective in securing salvation for guilty sinners, then we have to conclude that that very fact, and that not everybody is actually saved, that forces us to conclude that Christ died for particular people. It's sort of inescapable at that point. So let's define a couple of terms The word atonement, we've been talking about limited atonement or Christ's atoning work. It's a word that we're real familiar with these days. We say it all the time, atonement. Historically, if you go back in the Old Testament, there is a day that God set aside when the high priest would come into the holiest of holies, the holiest place inside the tabernacle, and he would come in with a particular sacrifice that he would pour before the mercy seat, And that day in the Hebrew, we know it is Yom Kippur. Actually, in the Old Testament, it's referred to as the Yom HaKippurim. It's pluralized. It's the day of atonements, 
because there were actually several atonements that took place on that day. The priest, before he went into the Holy of Holies, had to sacrifice for himself first. He had to be ceremonially pure. Atonements had to be made for him before he would go and atone for the people. And so there were several atonements being made. That was called a covering. The Hebrew word, the kippurim, was actually a word that meant to cover because the sacrifice was made on the kapareth, on the covering that sat above the Ark of the Covenant. And so that word, when it was translated into Greek in the Greek Septuagint, the Greeks used the word katalagai or katalage to translate this notion of covering of kapurim. And then as it moved into the English language, we had to try to find some English word that was equivalent to this notion of expiation of sin, of covering our sin. We had to find some word that said that, and we just don't have any. Now, there was an old English term that was used when two people were against each other, when two people were arguing against each other, when they were brought into reconciliation with each other. And reconciliation is a good English Bible word. We read that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so Paul says we have this ministry of reconciliation we're reconciling men and God by calling men to be reconciled to their God. Okay, that's a good concept. Well, the language that the Old English used, rather than reconcile, was to bring two people at one with each other. They were separate from each other. They were divided from each other in their arguing against each other. And so the process of stopping that againstness was bringing them together at one with each other. And then by the time William Tyndale wrote his 1534 New Testament, there was this descriptive form of the adjective at one. There was a descriptive form of that which was used as a noun in order to say that two people were brought together as one. You could say that the state they were now in was an at-one-ment. They had been brought together again. So William Tyndale picked up that word, at-one-ment, and used that to translate katalagai. Not having a better word, he said that what happened on the day of the Yom Kippur was that men and God who had been separated by their sin were now brought together and were at one again and achieved the state of at one We, just through repeating that word, are now mispronouncing it and we say atonement. And then people don't know what atonement means. And they go, atonement, what's that word? Because it is a made-up word. And because it's a made-up word, we've given it a definition that is different than the original definition it had. But when William Tyndale first chose that word to translate Kapareth covering Yom Kippur, he was trying to find an equitable English word in order to convey the idea of God covering sin so that men and God could be united again. Mm -hmm. Now, as time has gone by, to our modern-day ears, it may mean the finished work of Christ and what he did on the cross. But originally it didn't mean that, and that's really all I'm getting at. When we read the word atonement, we even call it the Day of Atonement, we need to recognize that that harkens all the way back to the high priest being in the Holy of Holies, pouring out blood to create an at-one-ment between God and man. And that's an important concept that I don't want to lose just because our modern definition of the word isn't that. I don't want to lose that concept. It's a really vital concept because, again, it's God that did it. It's God that constructed it and then allowed men to participate in it. And 
if the modern definition doesn't understand that whole idea of covering and togetherness, then the modern definition is lacking. So we're arguing that this atoning work, now that we all know what atoning means, this atoning work then simply cannot be universal. If you look at Jesus' own words, he makes it clear that he is not giving his life for everybody who ever lived. In John 10, 11, we read Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, as soon as he says that, he has set a limitation to the atoning work he's about to do. The redemptive work that he's about to accomplish on the cross, he has already limited to his sheep. And he says it's based on his character. He's the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he would lay his life down for the sheep that he is tending. And then he says to some people, you're not my sheep. That's why you can't hear my word. So if he says he's laying down his life for the sheep and then says to some people, you're not my sheep, is he then laying his life down for them? The answer is kind of obvious. It's, well, no, he just limited the atonement. Jesus himself taught limited atonement. In John 10, starting at verse 26, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And then he differentiates his sheep and says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. Okay, he's just designated his sheep as the ones who get eternal life in God's presence. That's the kind of life I give them. But he's just said to the Pharisees, you're not among that crowd. You're not among the sheep that I'm busy saving. I give eternal life to my sheep. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Boy, that's very good news. No one will snatch them out of my hand, because as long as we're here in this mortal flesh, we're going to do our best to get ourselves out of God's hand. Not on purpose. We're not trying to do it. It's just that we're so depraved. We're so sinful that every day we're going to, our rebellions are going to rise up in us. It's really good to know that no matter what we've done, nobody is going to snatch us out of the hand of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had the experience, I've asked this question a lot lately, have you had the experience of doing something, saying something, thinking something, where your next thought is, how could I be saved? How can I call myself a Christian? Here I am again. I swore I'd never be like this. I said I'd never do this, and here I am doing it again. Well, it's a good thing that your salvation is not dependent on you. Because you'd wreck it. But it's good to know that nobody, including you, can snatch you out of Christ's hand. My father, who gave them to me, so now the elect, the sheep, are given to Christ by God. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than everyone and everything, and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand And I and the Father are one. You're about as secure as you can get. If you are saved because you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and then Christ died for you, well, then you are fully redeemed. Your sin problem has been paid for. Your sins are utterly expiated. And therefore, you have nothing to fear before God, which is why Paul could write that we come to the throne of grace crying, Abba, Father. We get that kind of boldness because we know that we are among those who God has chosen and for whom Christ actually died. As I said before, everybody's going to limit the atonement in some way. Despite Jesus himself limiting it, even the Arminian contingent ends up limiting it. If Christ died for everybody's sin, but he didn't actually save anyone, then somebody else has to engage it and put it to work. Salvation, as I said earlier, then becomes a possibility, 
but not a completed, accomplished fact. But if he actually genuinely died to save his sheep, if he actually saved some people in his propitiatory work, well, then he didn't and couldn't have saved absolutely everybody. Here's the way John Owen put it. This is the classic John Owen argument. It's been repeated for hundreds of years. And I'm going to repeat it now again because it is just a brilliant summation of what limited atonement is. It would be easy for me to just state the argument and pretend it was mine, but then clever people on the internet would say, wait a minute, that's the John Owen argument. I recognize that because it really is a very popular, well-known argument. Here's the way he put it. The father imposed his wrath due unto and the son underwent punishment for either. Now he's going to give you three choices. And he's going to say that God poured out his wrath on the son and the son underwent some punishment from the father on behalf of some group of people. Here are the three choices. He died for all the sins of all men. That's choice number one. Or... He died for all the sins of some men or some of the sins of all men. Those are the only three choices. That's the only way you can look at the sacrificial finished work of Christ. You have to say that he died for all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men or some of the sins of all men. Those are your only three options. In which case, John Owen writes... If the last be true, that Jesus died for some sins of all men, if that's true, then all men still have some sins to answer for. And so, no one can be saved. Because you still have sins to answer for. And so you're going to stand before God and have to answer for your own sin. That's going to result in nothing but judgment for you. If the second be true which is Christ died for all the sins of some men, if the second be true, then Christ, in their stead, suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the whole world. And this, Owen writes, is the truth. But if the first be the case, that he died for all the sins of all men, if the first be the case, then why are not all men free from the punishment that's due for their sins? Because if he died for all the sins of all the elect, then why are some people punished later by God for their sinfulness, since Christ was their complete redeemer? And then some people will say, this is what Owen writes, but it still is common today. You see it in churches today. When they'll tell you that Jesus died for all the sins of all people, they'll then say, and you have to make it effective by believing it. You have to believe it for it to be effective in your life. Jesus died for absolutely everybody, but you have to put it into effect. So why would some men still have to pay a a punishment, a penalty for their sins? Owen writes, you answer, because of unbelief. That means that argument's been around a long time, and it's still being preached all over the place. Owen writes, I ask, is this unbelief of yours a sin, or is it not? Well, of course it is. It's a sin for you not to believe the finished work of Christ. Well, if it be a sin, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it, or he did not. In other words, if he died for all your sin and you have the sin of unbelief, God can't hold that against you because that's one of the sins that Christ died for when he died for all sin. See the conundrum? So then universalism is the inescapable result because even people who didn't believe in Christ have to be saved because their sin of unbelief was paid for by Christ when he died for all the sins of all the people. Owen's last sentence is, if he did, why must that hinder them 
more than any other sin for which Christ died. And if he did not, then he did not die for all their sin. Then you're back to he died for some of the sin of all people. So you can see the conundrum. Even if you look at it logically, it's inescapable that Christ had to die for the elect of God. He could not have died for all the sins of all the people. If he died for some of the sins of all the people, then you still have sin to answer for. If he died for all the sins of all the people, then even unbelief is not a good reason for people not to be saved. So the only option left to you is that Christ actually died for all the sins of some men, some particular people. We talked a few minutes ago in talking about atonement and the day of atonement. We talked about the fact that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Are you bored yet? Oh, no. Are you okay still? Okay. We talked about the fact that the high priest would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies. That was typifying, foreshadowing what Christ was later going to do in his sacrifice. They, in the Holy of Holies, used sacrificial animals, and they did the covering work, bringing about the atonement that we spoke of. But the question is, when the high priest went in and did that atoning work, was he doing it for a limited group of people, or was he doing it for everybody without distinction? Some people argue that what the high priest performed was a universal atonement because they say the high priest atoned for the sins of all of Israel. And since every person within Israel had their sins atoned for, that's an argument for universal atonement, so they argue. But I prefer to look at it from the perspective of the whole wide world, all the human beings on the planet... There was nobody being atoned for who happened to be living at the time down in Egypt or out in Italy or somewhere in Spain. There were no other people groups anywhere on the planet that were being atoned for when the high priest went in and atoned in the Holy of Holies once a year. In fact, there were no other people groups on the planet who were even instructed how to do that atoning work. Nobody else had prophets and priests the way that God had instructed Israel to have. Nobody else had the oracles or the law of God. Nobody else knew that it was required of them once a year to go in, sacrifice an animal, and to do it in the holiest place before an Ark of the Covenant. No other people group knew that. God had the high priest go in and atone particularly for the sins of Israel. And I'm not just saying that because the high priest belonged to one of the tribes of Israel. I'm saying it because it's exactly what God said. Here's what it says. On his shoulders when he walked in, the high priest wore an ephod. And Exodus 39.7 says, it describes it this way. The ephod on the shoulders was a memorial to the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. The high priest wore a breastplate with four rows of three precious stones. Exodus 39 verse 14 tells us, and the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel, according to the 12 tribes. So when the high priest walked in, he had Israel on his shoulders as a burden that he was carrying, and he had Israel over his heart in gold and precious stones. When he went in to do the atoning work, God said that that work was done for Israel. That is very, very limited atonement. So even the early foreshadow, the early typology of the atoning work that Christ would do was already limited. It was already demonstrating that it was for particular people. You can't possibly get a universal atonement out of the high priest in the Holy of Holies. 
you have to, by looking at the details, recognize that it was limited to the people God chose, the people God already called his elect. Remember, we began with Israel as the elect of God. We were building to this, that God, for his elect, also gave them a law, gave them prophets, gave them oracles, gave them ways in which they could appease his wrath. And for another year, they would be at one with each other because of the work of the high priest done between God and Israel collectively, but not for any other people group on the planet. Is that obvious enough? No Hittites, no Jebusites, no Democrites. Nobody else got their payment. Really, nothing? We're just going to let that go? No, nobody else got the atoning work done for them. It was only for Israel. Why? Because God chose Israel. They, being his elect, had atoning work done for them. That type and shadow is then advanced in the New Testament, which is Christ, our high priest, did the atoning work for the particular people that God chose. It's consistent, Old Testament or New, it's inescapable that the atonement has been limited. So looking at the clock on the wall, I know that the next section that we're going to look at is going to take the better part of probably a half hour, 40 minutes. And so for your sake, I'm going to let you go home Uh, Don't shake hands with each other. Don't hug each other. Stay at least six feet apart. And don't even look at each other. Just avoid each other on the way out. In fact, after our closing prayer, just single file, one by one, go out the door and get in your cars and go home. Um, Did you learn something this morning? Yes. Was it worth being here? Yes. Above everything Do you understand how remarkably saved you are? Do you understand that in order for God to do with such great particularity the things that he has done, he has absolutely guaranteed your salvation? Because you are the elect of God, not only has the redemptive, reconciling work been done by Christ, but now nobody can lay anything to your charge. You're just utterly redeemed But that's because God chose you to be redeemed. So he gets all the glory. He gets all the worship. And that kind of takes us back to where we started today. That's why we keep worshiping under any circumstances. Because the circumstances of this life are fleeting. They're changing. Your life is like a vapor. It's gone before you know it. And then you've got eternity. And it's best to be prepared for that eternity. It's best to be in at one with God. That's the way to leave this planet. Yes, indeed. Make sense? Yes. Makes sense to me. You look curious. <laughs> Just a little fuzzy when you were saying, yes, the atoning work of the high priest of Israel is limited to, of course, Israel. Mm-hmm. You said nobody else on the planet. I was thinking... Well, other people on the planet were doing sacred, they're trying, they have that sense of, hey, I need something outside of myself, and they're sacrificing other humans to whatever, yeah. trying to appease the gods that they had. Yeah. So there's that sense of it, but the, we're not talking about that, we're talking about the particular atoning work that Israel had preached. And the worship of Yahweh, right. as opposed to any other god. But isn't that an interesting element? It's something that I talked about at the conference. Human beings, because we're made in the image of God, just have this innate sense of worship. We want to worship, and we just do. We just innately worship something. If we don't know Yahweh, if we don't know the real God who made heaven and earth, we'll still worship something. Whether that's a rock star or whether it's a sports star, whether it's a politician, whether it's a politician, whether it's a preacher, we're ultimately going to express value to somebody. You know that worship is a contraction of two old English words, worthship. It's it's a way of demonstrating value. The Greek word actually means kiss toward. 
So it means to show obeisance towards someone who is over you, somebody who has authority over you. But we don't say kiss toward. We say, well, something has worth, something has value. Whatever you spend your time on, whatever you spend your money on, whatever attracts your time and attention, you're expressing value to that. That is worth. And so that is a form of worth-ship. And if your money, if your time is all exercised toward the rock star you love or the politician you love or whatever else, that is, in the truest sense of the word, worship. And we just have this innate sense. We worship something. And you see it everywhere. Once you get that mindset, you see it everywhere. There are people this past couple of weeks, and I know this is going to sound silly, but I mean for it to. There are people this past couple of weeks who were worshiping toilet paper (laughs) because that's where they saw worth. That's where they saw value. I got to have that. I will spend my time, my money. I will fight people. I will argue with people over it, and I will spend whatever I got to spend to have that particular object. Okay, well, that becomes an object of worship. And mankind has always had objects of worship. They just don't know to worship God. God has to reveal himself to you in order for you to finally realize that your time, your money, your interest really needs to be devoted to him first. And then everything else is secondary. That's genuine worship toward God, the maker of heaven and earth. But yeah, what you brought up is, as you could just tell because you tricked that part of my brain into talking about it, I find it fascinating that human beings will worship, and they'll worship great things, and they'll worship mediocre things, but they worship. So. That's interesting, the changing of words and their meaning. The, the best example that I hear all the time is the word hope, where we would say that hope is the assurance of things mm-hmm. to come where hope is never used like that nowadays. Hope is always um, a holding out for something um, that it will happen, but you don't know for sure. It's yeah. kind of this uncertainty, but you're holding out for it. Whereas we have that assurance that that's what we would yeah. say hope is. And I think that is uh, what Peter was getting at when he said to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks about the hope that is within you. Yeah. If it was just hope, if it was just, you know, Cross your fingers. I hope it all works out. Then people aren't going to ask you about that. But in the midst of a world gone crazy, sort of like we're living with right now, if you have a genuine confidence that it's all going to be okay, one way or the other, it's all going to work out. God has control of this. And you're not panicking like the rest of the world. You're not freaking out like everybody else. Well, then, of course, people are going to ask you, what is it about you? Where does that confidence come from? So, yes, I'm just agreeing and extrapolating on what you just said. The word hope, the word el peace in the Greek language is very different than our modern word hope. Well, and I can't even think of an equivalent for the modern word hope the way we say hope. Because even when I'm trying to describe what I don't think it is, I don't know how to describe it except it's not like we're hoping something happens. We end up using the same word to define the word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, define the word hope. Well, it's when you hope for something. Oh, okay. Christian hope as opposed to secular. Yeah, Yeah. as opposed to wishing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gambling. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Gee, I hope this happens. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else? Very good comments. Very good feedback. Yes, sir. He said that this morning as I was thinking about it. It was all the fear and the afraidness. It's hard to be afraid when you're singing, when we're praising God. And our focus is not on us. And okay, we have to do, we have to do this, which is what you know the world. You have to go out and get your toilet paper. Yeah. If you're worshiping the thing of value, which is Jesus, it's very difficult to be afraid. You are preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> I mean, praying to God, singing to God. That genuine sense of worship makes you feel okay. Makes you feel like this is all going to work out. God's got this. So until further notice, we will still be meeting here. Wednesdays and Sundays, as I said last week, I will still be standing here 
even if I'm standing here by myself, because standing here by myself will help me to be able to concentrate to put a message out for the internet folks. But it's good to have eyes to look into. It's good to get feedback from people. So if you can be here, be here. If this week suddenly there's an outbreak of coronavirus in Rutherford County, we're not going to be here. I'm not, I'm not looking to make anybody sick or to spread the virus. And I think socially it would be wrong of us, for lack of a better word, to, to meet here under the potential of spreading the virus into the society. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. Anything else? I've gone way too long. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.